The Horse and Hound Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound Podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted and so excited to be your host today for the very first episode of our new podcast. It's been such beautiful weather, and I hope everyone's doing okay despite the lockdown, and you've been able to get out and enjoy the sunshine with your horses. To kick off this week's podcast, we speak to Lucinda Green. The six-time badminton winner features in the Legends series in today's magazine. And what a legend she is. He landed so badly and threw me off. And I hung on to the reins and he didn't even notice I wasn't on him. And I just shouted, whoa, whoa, as I was being pulled along the ground at God knows what speed. Also, we catch up with Eleanor Jones and Lucy Elder from the Horse and Hound News Desk to discuss all the latest developments as the horse world navigates through the coronavirus pandemic. And finally, vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine talks us through identifying whether your horse is overweight and tips for managing the problem if he is piling on the pounds. Most horses should be walking around for 16, 18 hours a day. They'll be constantly grazing, constantly exercising, and very few of our horses are ever getting that. They're stuck in stables all day, and that's, that's their biggest issue. More from Vet Ricky Farr in a bit. So tighten your girths and let's get down to business. I'm pleased to introduce our first Horse and Hab podcast guest, Lucinda Green. But I'm sure Lucinda needs no introduction for most of you. Her feat in winning six badmintons on six different horses is legendary in eventing and unlikely ever to be repeated. Lucinda was also a British team stalwart throughout the 1970s and 80s, winning 13 senior championship medals, including two European individual golds and a world individual gold. Lucinda, it's so great to have you with us. First of all, how are you coping with the current lockdown situation? Hi, Pippa. It's lovely to be on. I'm very um, honoured, flattered that you have chosen me as your first guest. This, you realise, could be the end of anybody listening to podcasts after my <laughs> effort. But anyhow, we, we will try. And um, if you're asking about lockdown, I feel very guilty saying this because I know what a horrible time it's been for a great many people. I'm absolutely loving it. I spent the last 30 years on an airport. And it's, it's, that's what it feels like. Um, and I don't have to travel anywhere. I don't have to pack. I don't have to plan. There is nothing to plan for. (laughs) All of these things sending other people mad are absolutely the best holiday I've had for a long time. And we're lucky because I've got Lissa and her boyfriend locked down with me and we've got five horses in the most delightful farm. And so we just wind our way through every day. (laughs) Housework, I have learned how dreadful that is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great to hear that you and uh, and your daughter Lissa are uh, are together and her boyfriend. And and have you been helping Lissa with the horses and being able to get out about and ride a bit? I've had to do a lot of it because she's still not well. She's still, believe this or not, you guys have had concussion. She's 19 months into a concussion that she got falling down some cellar steps. So I've been doing a lot, but that just means sort of turning them out um, and riding them and feeding them. And she, when she's feeling good, she comes with me and that's great. But some of the time she doesn't, but she's slowly getting better, she thinks. Yeah, that's such a serious injury to have. And I heard about her talking about it on another podcast, actually, recently. And you don't realise with concussion how these things can happen and and you think you're fine, but actually you never really recover, as you say, for months and it can really linger. Yeah, and then you don't get much sympathy because you look fine, your leg isn't broken, you know, and it's it's hard. We've had to try and persuade her to tell us when she's not feeling right because it's hard to guess. 
It's very, yeah. very wavy. So anybody who's had knocking out, my golly, we used to have to go into a darkened room for 48 hours. And they don't do that anymore. I strongly recommend it. The brain needs to just stop dead when you've been knocked out and really recover without the screen in front of it for at least the first 48 hours. And when I talk to the docs about it now, they say, oh, yes, oh, yes, but they didn't tell us to do it then. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a, it's a really tough one. And well, I'm sure that um, all the horse and hound listeners will be wishing all the best to Lister as she recovers from that injury. But I'm glad to hear that, that you're coping okay with the lockdown and it's actually giving you some some space and time to uh, to enjoy the sunshine, the weather being so good. Um, Lucinda, I'd like to talk a little about your career. We have the Legends feature with you in the Horse and Hound magazine out today, the 4th of June, the day this podcast is being released. And the feature which you did through an interview with Catherine Austin explores particularly what you learnt from each of your top horses. And I'd love to kick off by talking a little about Be Fair. You say in the feature that he was a no horse, not a yes horse. And it eventually became clear to me that this horse absolutely trusted me. And I think that's a real theme that a lot of riders find with their very top horse, that because they learn together, they develop a level of trust that perhaps that rider actually never experiences again later in their career. And because they have a lot of time at that stage in their career to spend time with one horse and and really build that relationship. And I was just hoping you could tell us a little about that very special relationship that you had with with Be Fair, your very first badminton winner. You you phrase it beautifully, what I've been struggling to say for years, and I think very often your first horse is your best horse, whether he actually is technically is another matter. Your first horse is your best horse because you have had that time and you have developed a relationship. You don't really know what you're doing. So your horse has, has had to fill in the holes, if you like it, and, and this enormous trust develops between the two of you. And I agree, you then get onto a, a higher level and, and maybe you're lucky enough that you get extra horses sent to you to ride or you can buy them and you suddenly haven't got that one-to-one time and you've got five horses to ride you've got 25 horses to ride I just don't know how you can recreate that first wonderful wonderful relationship and I can honestly only describe it as a love affair it really is and and when it be fair took me from pony club and a right little devil rearing the whole time scared me to death we had to send him to some grown-ups to help him (laughs) help him (laughs) find his way he only found it through hunting and then he suddenly became much more of a yes horse and not a no horse but it it it's um a hard thing to ever recreate again even though the next horses that came along i felt i did get a pretty amazing relationship with them even though one of them was only with me for two of them were only with me for a very short time before the first badminton. That's something that I was that really stood out for me in the feature as well, that both George and Claire came to you just weeks before you were successful in a major event with them. And obviously we know that these days riders, because of qualifications, aren't able to compete at that very top level on catch rides. But I think we all still experience situations where we want to build a relationship quickly with a horse for whatever reason. And do you have any tips looking back at those experiences for how you can sort of accelerate that process of, of getting to know a horse and, and to understand each other if you don't have a lot of time? It's a very, very good question that you put there, Pippa. And the, the first thing that springs to my mind is that I automatically get on a horse and my glass is half full I love him and then if he does enough wrong I start not to like him quite so much but he automatically gets um gets a a lot of positive ticks in the box as I get on him and then I think I would be saying to him now how do you like to be ridden what do you like do you like to be held together you like to go fast you like to be 
pulled to a slower pace before a jump. And I'm not talking about the dressage here because I'm not good enough and wretched dressage to really know what I'm doing. But the, the jumping bit, I do absolutely love. And I love the feeling of jumping with a horse. I love the feeling of a horse trusting you to go over that fence that's into a darkened quarry in a wood. You know, why would he go? He doesn't know what's the other side. He only goes because he trusts you. And, and developing that... I think you can often do in, in, in tiny um, increments on a hack. I mean, if you're lucky enough, and we are, to have hacking, that means you don't just sit on a, a main, main road being terrified. You can go into the woods and you can go off the tracks and you can go up and down banks and pop little things that are ditches and, and odd branches and just teach the horse. The very first lesson I think I ever learned about cross country all those years ago was that he must learn he can trust you and anywhere you ask him to go it will be safe and he can go and you can do that in mini form at a, a in in the wood whatever but you have got to be damn careful that you don't have him go into some situation that isn't safe i remember once getting into a stream and cutting my horse really badly on the paston because there was a bit of glass in the stream well that wasn't a great a great way to encourage the poor mare to go into water and I, I will sometimes go over the tree roots of a big oak tree and get them to do their footwork by walking over the roots so that they scramble and clamber. And you've got to be careful that a rabbit hasn't made a hole in, in between those roots. So you have to be a little bit aware that you're taking the natural country as your tool of training them to trust you that wherever you ask them to go, it's safe. But you have to be aware that it might not be. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear that that's something you can really develop in your hacking at home. And I was um, I was lucky enough to ride yesterday for the first time since the lockdown started, first time in 10 weeks, and I took the little horse that I share with my mum into the woods and I was popping him over some logs. And as you say, it's so tempting just to say, oh, I'll jump that. I'm sure there's nothing on the other side. But yes. I, uh, I was I was a good girl and I did look on the other side on all occasions before I jumped these logs, which were about eight inches high. But um, it's uh, something we should all uh, no, make sure we you're, do. You're, you're so right. And you, you can sort of... Uh, you can you can make it safe, but you can get unlucky too. And as you say, you can take a chance and not, the chance doesn't come off. But I, I love that thing. I remember in the good old days, people used to discard washing machines on the side of the road. And I remember Karen Donker saying, oh, we used to jump washing machines on the side of the road. <laughs> it, it's, it's the same theory. You're, you're teaching them that you, they go wherever you ask them to go and it's okay. And that builds such a bond. You can feel it. And it is not dissimilar to a bond in a good marriage. Um, and you can have some fairly rocky times in your, in, your, in your relationship with your horse as well. That's not just in marriage. Um, and, and you have to repair those holes and, and maybe sometimes go back to the beginning and start again. But trust for me is everything. And I okay, it's wonderful if they have a lot of talent too, but you don't want to let the talent take away from building the trust. I love that idea of the Belgian inventor Karen Donkers jumping washing machines on the side of the road. But it's it's so interesting that you touch on that trust and uh, talent sort of um, matrix there, Lucinda. Another thing that, uh, that I read in, in that feature was that you said about Killaire, that you learned that a horse who was only an ordinary hunter could jump around horses like that because he wanted to. And we put so much emphasis in eventing on the willingness of the horse to do the job over his talent, I think. And I think that's so important in our sport that um, actually, trust and relationship is is sometimes more important than talent yes i i i think that talent is 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 because it's so 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 difficult at the top now i mean god i'm glad i'm not trying to do it at the top level now because i wouldn't stand a chance their horses are so incredibly talented in so many ways but 
I do, and I remember just reading an article about Ingrid Timka, who is one of my absolute pinups for taking the spirit of the sport forwards um, and loving her horses. And her favourite horse was a brilliant mare called Escada. But like so many horses with the most amazing talent, she was impossibly difficult to keep sound. And she did enough to get to her top level, but she never stayed there like her lovely, less well-moving, if you like it, slightly less talented horse that she has at the moment, who's been up there for five years or something. So it's a really interesting one. You, you want the talent because you want to have this marvellous jump on the last day after they've done the cross-country and want them to be clear. And you obviously want them flashing the pants off the dressage judges. But then if you're going to have all that talent, are you going to stay sound? And I agree with you 100% that, that talent sometimes takes the place of developing the trust because you sort of know the horse can jump so brilliantly. You know he can move so brilliantly. So you maybe miss out a few of the things you, you deal with when your horse isn't so naturally talented. It's a fascinating thing, but I am aware that <laughs> I came from an age where a lack of talent, a lack of talent could win. Um, and I'm looking around me now and thinking, gosh, the ones that win are pretty jolly talented. But I don't know. You look at Sam and you look at um, the mayor of Michael Young's. I mean, they were not talented. As he looked at them on the ground. They didn't trot very well. They didn't jump brilliantly. And they stayed sound enough to do what they did for Michael over the last 10 years. So maybe that is a pretty contemporary example. Yeah, you're right. Michael Young's two top horses that you're mentioning there, Labiestatique Sam and Fisher Rakana, neither of them were horses that you would probably have picked out. And I know that when um, Sam, I, I think before he was cut, went forward to potentially be graded as a stallion and um, and they, they didn't think much of him at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. They're, they're horses who, um, who who got to the top because of the way they were trained and, and the relationship they had with, with Michael, that amazing German rider. It's a really interesting one, isn't it, to look at the the length of time that you have in the sport you know your first badminton is is some 48 years ago now but you were still riding at Blenheim at the old three-star level not long ago and you thought you know 40 years after your first badminton win but that's less than 10 years ago now and and still competing a couple of years ago I was competing this time last May I was flat on my flat on the floor at height in a three-star yeah so quite, quite not doing quite as well as i'd like but they, they know, we, we all know that right that the, the downs come with the ups it's the way it is so I, i've been very lucky and i've just had one horse really for the last i don't know 10 15 years which means you're not very oiled and you're not very good anymore but it is something i love doing so i have been able to just do it with one horse a little bit i haven't got a horse now though so that that one i just wasn't going to enjoy being being at the level i wanted to be at so he's gone to a my ex-groom, who is the most divine girl, and she's riding him with great success at one metre level. Oh, that's perfect. And I remember um, a horse that actually isn't touched on in, in the in the magazine feature, but Mr. Mina, the lovely mare that you had later yes. in your career. Um, tell us a little more about her, because, uh, you know, not, not one of your greats in terms of being a winner, but a horse who uh, was very competitive in, um, you know, the later years of your career. She was a lovely, lovely Irish mare, um, but she had the most appalling trouble with her cycling and she was probably not in discomfort one day in a month. And that was the day you could do dressage. The rest of the time, she just had her years back, swished her tail. So our wonderful vet, Bobby McEwen, popped a marble into her, I suppose it's uteruses. I'm not quite sure where you put a marble, which makes them think that they are in foal. And that absolutely worked for a bit. And then it, she spat it out, or whatever you do when a marble disappears. And in the end, I did give her away 
um, she belonged to the lovely Windsor Clives, and I discussed with them after I'd made an error at Blenheim that I felt was entirely because she was stronger than I was able to be. She came into a big table wrong, and instead of shortening herself up, because I didn't have her in a good enough balance in her gallop for her to be able to shorten herself up, so it was my fault, she shot to the side to give herself a bit of extra room, and I remember it was a giant's table, and she flipped the fork, the giant's fork, through the air like a missile. So I sort of thought, oh, my golly. But having done that, she landed awkwardly and overreached so badly that there was no question of her being able to come out the next day. And I thought, you know, this is such a talented mare, and she's a three, in those days three-star, now four-star. I just feel that she needs somebody stronger than me. And so Chris King did really well with her, and... and that was another lesson that I think he and I would have learned from there because he came up onto the dairy mound and his watch was telling him that he was a little behind the time. And as so often happens when you come to a fence on top of a mound, a stride presents itself and it was a long one. And he, because the clock was on and he was late, he took the long one and she turned over. And if he hadn't known that the clock was dictating to him that he was late I bet you he would have done what his instinct would have wanted to which is just say what we've just come up a bank onto dairy mine shorten up and we'll pop this oxer so I said that's sort of an interesting one to learn off that you have to be so careful when you look at your watch and that's why I'm very against the peeping because the damn peeping comes at you just when you maybe are needing to make an incredibly important decision yeah, that's fascinating, Lucinda, because it's actually something I've experienced myself riding at a very low level where I've been distracted and I actually have the beeps silenced on my watch now for that for that reason. Cause I... How brilliant. Well, will you lead a campaign? Because it's not a big thing to do. I, I suspect people can cheat if they want. They'll get something buzzing in their pocket somewhere. <laughs> it, as, a, as a safety issue, your mind is so fixed on what you intuitively need to do as you come to a fence and suddenly you hear beep, beep, beep and you think blast I'm late you know that shouldn't have gone off until 10 seconds the other side of this fence and it makes you possibly make the wrong decision and, and that that was the only reason Mr Mina didn't have the most glorious round round Burley but anyhow Chris did awfully well with her and that was a great pleasure for me to see that he did manage her rather better than I had at that Blenheim. And it's lovely to hear about um, about that mare and, and the career she went on to have with Chris after you. Um, talking of, of, of falls and mistakes Lucinda one story I have to pick up on from that Legends feature was at the Europeans at Burley in 1977 and I believe you fell off on the steeplechase when an error of course <laughs> led to your horse becoming tangled in the string. And that's something we cannot possibly imagine happening in the sport now. And you being allowed to get back on the horse, continue on your way and win medals. It's just so far, you know, in the sport nowadays, if you fall off, that's it. You're out and there are sensible safety reasons for that as as, as Lissa's concussion, although that wasn't from yeah, the horse exactly. does show. But I mean, I don't think for a lot of our, of our readers and listeners who weren't around at that time, was the sport more gung-ho in those days? I mean, it's just so far from our understanding and imagining to be allowed to do that. It's a, a sad depiction of the times that we live in. And I, I, I understand absolutely why these rules have gone into place. I also understand that we've been the longest we've ever been without a war. And therefore, other things that weren't so important in the 20, 30 years after a hideous thing like a world war start to become much more important. 
and and I think it's had an effect. So getting back on on phase B, and it was my fault because I headed him down the wrong string channel. So then I realised I couldn't get onto the second circuit. I was going down the finish channel. So like, uh, I mean, what else do you do at 690 metres a minute? You pull left in order to get back onto the track you want to be on because you can't possibly stop before you go through the finish. And of course, that made him trip and threw me off. And I hung on to the reins and he didn't even notice I wasn't on him. And I just shouting whoa George whoa whoa as I was being pulled along the ground at god knows what speed and eventually said, oh my goodness you're down there and he pulled up and then I had to get on and my stirrups were short and I was feeling incredibly weak because for various reasons I hadn't eaten for a long time and um I somehow had to scramble on and get going and that amazing horse continued and did that chase within the time so it was an extraordinary thing but that is the sort of the toughness of the era and I think that's come from the generation before where people really knew what it was like to deal with tragedy. That's an incredible story. Finally, on a different topic, um, we're talking a lot about the Olympics at the moment. Obviously, we're all missing the Tokyo Olympics this year, very much hoping the Games in Japan will go ahead in 2021. You were the flag bearer for the whole of Team GB at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. What was your experience of being an Olympian and, and, and what does that mean to you? What a beautiful thing to touch on because it is such a long time ago now that I'm quite sure <laughs> I'll never forget it, but I'm quite sure everybody else has. I, I just can't describe to you the unbelievable thrill of being asked to do it and then of doing it. Um, it was something incredibly special and I just feel sad that only one person every four years can do it and possibly two because the closing ceremony is usually another athlete. Um, I am in such a, a disappointed frame of mind about the Olympics, the horse Olympics. I can't stand the way we've had to change so much of our sport to try and stay within the Olympic thing of universality. I think we're making such a rod for our own backs. We are making much more difficult dressage and show jumping and easier cross country. The whole sport is based around cross country. If it was based around dressage and show jumping, we would all go and do that on its own. So we're losing the ethos in order to let in these teams that are qualifying in, in way out places um, and still aren't, aren't really efficient at what they're doing because it takes such a long time to get good enough to ride at that level. So we're going to let in people that aren't good enough. So we're going to have accidents. We're going to see the courses getting easier. And then we haven't got our eventing anymore. We haven't got cross country as the kingpin. So for that reason, I am very keen that we get dropped out of the Olympics, which I have created a lot of enemies for saying it. But I just feel we're not in control of our own sport and it's been taken down the wrong alleyway. And I do appreciate that there's an enormous amount of money comes because we're in the Olympics and a great deal of annual wages come because we're in the Olympics and those people quite understandably are going to fight tooth and nail for our sport to stay in it because it's their livelihood but trying to step back and trying not to let money dictate which is easy for me because it doesn't um isn't my livelihood I just feel it's gone beyond the pale now that's so fascinating, Lucinda, because it's something that we, we talk about a lot and how far are we prepared to compromise our sport in order to stay in the Olympics and should it dictate the direction the whole sport goes? And it's a big, big topic there that we probably need a whole podcast to explore on its own. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast, being our very first Horse and Ham podcast guest. It's wonderful to talk to you as always and I hope we can do it again in the future. Well, thank you for having me and I hope I haven't put everybody off the Horse and Ham podcast from now on. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. 
So I'm here with Horse and Hound's news editor, Eleanor Jones, and our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. We're going to talk a little bit about the coronavirus pandemic, which is obviously sweeping the world and has been affecting the horse world just as it has everything else. But it feels like we're at quite a positive point now where we might actually be looking to get some sport back in terms of the Olympic and Paralympic disciplines. And we've actually already had some racing this week in Britain. Yeah, it does look very much more positive and that things are moving in the right direction, which is brilliant. And it looks like we may even have some show jumping training shows running this weekend. And Eleanor, just explain to us what the um, the government guidelines are around elite sport versus normal sport at this time. So elite sport um, is defined as those who make their living from their sport. So racing, premiership football, um, all that sort of thing. Ours is, has to be down to the practicing sport or exercising outside. So we're subject to the limits on the number of people you can meet. And that's quite um, something, an extra difficulty for the governing body is that we have different rules on the number of people you can currently meet in England, Scotland and Wales. So that's an extra factor for them to take into account, isn't it? Yeah, and it must be so difficult to try to get these plans in place that can cope with the different requirements. Um, But all the governing bodies have been working really hard on how they can make it work in a way that is viable for the show centres and that members will want to do. And Lucy, you've been working on a story for us this week about surveys that have been going out to riders to see whether there's an appetite for them to start competing again. Yes, it's been um, really interesting, actually. It's been almost a bit of a flurry of them (laughs) this week um, to riders, owners, organisers. Of course, racing restarted on Monday. Um, Governing bodies as well have been talking a little bit about how competition might look with social distancing guidelines and things. So I think that's possibly where where the surveys have sort of originated from. Um, it's about when restrictions allow and for stakeholders and organisers to understand if there's an appetite there, which I think from the sort of early indications, again, that's another thing. These surveys have only been out a matter of days rather than weeks. So um, while they've got quite a lot of engagement, it is still quite early days in, in terms of analysing results and things. But for organisers to understand sort of what demands there, what sort of stages people's horses are at fitness wise and, and riders as well. Um, and also sort of maybe looking a bit at event viability and how that might work in, in social distancing is, is really important. And you've both touched on event viability there. And obviously there are challenges for everybody in these new and strange times. But we'll be looking potentially at only having five riders in the warm-up at a time to, to follow those government guidelines about how many people can meet and exercise together. And that means events will be taking fewer entries and potentially that makes financial viability a bit a bit trickier for organisers. And Lucy, you've also been working on a big story because British Eventing is in a wrangle with its insurers about entry fees for events which were cancelled at the beginning of the lockdown. And there are competitors still waiting for refunds on those entry fees. And following on from that, there's a question about how this will work going forward and uh, in terms of people entering and the fact that we could go back into a lockdown quickly and, and how that would work with refunds on entries in the future. I've been following this one quite closely and there is a lot of of very understandable frustration surrounding it and not least from those who've got money, which is in some cases hundreds or in other cases even thousands of pounds tied up in this. Um, so I really, really hope this gets sorted and sorted sooner rather than later. 
I've done quite a lot of trawling through various communications, um, talking to people, reading comments on social media and getting a feeling for information about what's going on. And it's something that I'm very much keeping tabs on. And I think you're absolutely right, Pippa, as well, in that there's a big question about how it's going to work going forward. Abandonment insurance, that is, both in the short term and in the long term. Yeah, it's a question about who takes the risk in our sport, really, isn't it? Who should who should carry that risk, whether it's riders, whether it's organisers, whether it's governing bodies, um, or whether it's an insurance company and whether any insurance company would take that risk in the near future. So that's definitely a story that we'll be following closely at Horse and Hound. And when we look at what these events are actually going to be like over the next couple of months, one of you mentioned earlier it is going to be a very different sport to the one that we're used to doing. And there are some really interesting and innovative ideas coming up about how we can make the sport work. A thing that I really was struck by in your story this week, Eleanor, was that um, British dressage is looking at using smartphones Mm. to record and transcribe comments to remove the need for writers, obviously, because normally a dressage writer would be sitting right next to a dressage judge um, in a car. And unless they were from the same household, that's not possible at the moment. And I thought that was such a, a great use of technology to try and find a way to um, to solve that problem. Yeah, no, it sounds like they're, they're looking at all sorts of different things to, so that we can be compliant with the guidance and so that everyone can be safe. And um, I, I did say, what about sort of headsets, radio headsets? And they said they had thought of that, but then there's an issue with shared equipment. So that's obviously another risk. But they are, yes, looking at these transcription thing, which would mean the judge could keep her eyes on the rider and make her comments at the same time. Because the training shows at the moment are just obviously the judge won't be able to be writing comments down for each movement while watching the rider. So it will be sort of more general comments at the end. So, yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea. A lot of talk as well about things like paying entries online, printing your own numbers, trying to reduce the need for riders to to sort of go to a secretary's or to gather at any at any central point but obviously riders are really keen to compete still and Lucy another thing that came out in your story was about the fact that riders want something to aim for they just don't want to pull horses out of the field and start aimlessly going to competitions they do want to be aiming for for championships and qualifying for um, for events. Yeah this is potentially not a huge surprise but I think it's it's interesting that eventers are goal-driven. I think that's possibly something that, that that they certainly know, but it's quite interesting to have that sort of backed up by surveys. I was hearing as well how people are wanting to plan their calendar and look at whether they are going to have goals to aim for, if that makes sense. So, And that apparently is from grassroots right up to securing Olympic qualifications. That was the feedback that I've heard from the people I spoke to about these surveys. Um, so looking at sort of planning a calendar or planning their campaign rather than bringing their horse out the field, getting back into work, up to fitness for maybe one random event. Again, I don't think it's going to be, you know, it's certainly not going to be overnight, but it's nice to be having these conversations really. So it's quite nice and positive. Another interesting aspect, which is more, well, partly around training competition horses, but also the the industry end and, and riding schools and so on, we've been talking about this week is confusion around indoor arenas and whether they can uh, whether they can be used at the moment or not um who'd like to tell us about that one Eleanor would you like to uh, tell us about the indoor arena confusion 
Yeah, it does seem um, because obviously at the start the the advice was outdoor sport, and of course a big you know twenty by sixty indoor arena isn't the same as a squash court. But we have had absolute confirmation from the government and British Equestrian that nothing indoors is allowed, and and that's it. <laughs> um, so you know, no, uh, there are a few show centres that have their big outdoor surfaces to compete on, but only indoor warm ups. And that's not allowed. Show centres are going to have to be clever about how they use their space if they normally rely on an indoor arena and riding schools will have to stick to uh, to outdoor lessons and, and so on for the time being until that, uh, that rule is relaxed. Yeah. It's great to see, though, that we are sort of taking taking steps in a positive and, and forward direction, even if, if things are quite uncertain and it's difficult for people to make plans. Oh, definitely. Um, I, for one, I was so excited to see racing restart this week and I never thought I'd get so excited about an all-weather card at Newcastle. Um, no offence to them, of course, but it was, it was really, really exciting to see that. Um, and of course, as well, there's still risk out there and and we all have to be sensible and follow government guidance and, and think about those around us. And this isn't taking away from that in, in any way at all. And sort of particularly at the moment, um, so many difficulties and people are facing loss and far bigger things than this at the moment. So I know nobody knows what the future holds, but it's 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 nice to get excited when there's good things and positive updates and things happening. Yeah, and I think it's just from our own points of view, just being able to get out and jump again and do what we love doing has been amazing. That's great. Thank you very much for joining me, Lucy and Eleanor, and we'll look forward to following these stories as they develop over the next few weeks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine will be here for each and every episode of the Horse and Hound podcast with guidance and advice on various horse health topics, including in this episode, where he'll talk us through the importance of identifying obesity in our horses and the steps we can take to help them get back on track if they are overweight. So here he is. Top equestrian vet, Ricky Farr. Hi, this is Rick from Farr and Percy Equine. On this episode, I'm going to go through overweight horses, really, and those horses kind of coming out of uh, winter periods, getting spring laminitis, those kind of risk factors that are associated with getting laminitis and and the issues that owners can kind of find and what they can actually do about it. Um, but I think one of the, the most important things to actually kind of think about is when you consider obesity uh, in itself. I mean, present company accepted, everyone out there would like to lose a little bit of weight. And I think we have exactly the same issues in most of our domestic species. You look at cats, dogs and everything, they're all overweight. And it's probably a lot due to our sedentary kind of lifestyle and uh, overindulging on um, yeah treats rather than going out having a, a healthy, active lifestyle, healthy diet and very much the same with our horses as well. Um, in the grand scheme of things, most horses should be walking around for X hours a day, at least 16, 18 hours a day. They'll be constantly grazing, constantly exercising, and very few of our horses are ever getting that. They're stuck in stables all day, and that's that's their biggest issue. Um, so some of the statistics out there show that uh, anything up to about 70% of our uh, equine population are actually overweight. And I think the biggest issue owners find is actually assessing and gauging whether their horse is actually overweight because we go out on uh, visits we see people and are quite often saying yep no my horse is absolutely fine and you look at it and in the back of your head you're going crikey actually this horse could do with shedding quite a few pounds so again it's assessing those kind of those weight scales there are various ways in which you can do that um, obviously most people 
consider body condition scoring to be kind of like one of the gold standards. It's one of the things that everyone can do. They can do it on a weekly basis, monthly basis. We commonly use uh, condition scores one through to nine, nine being absolutely huge and obese and practically unrideable, and zero obviously being emaciated. And the scary statistic is that if you consider that most horses over the scale of seven are classed as obese, actually up to 20% of their body weight can just be pure fat alone. And some studies are actually showing that actually up to 40% of their entire body weight is pure fat, which when you consider that, and everyone's seen those programs on TV where you have like slabs of lard stuck on the side of a table and you can see how much fat they're carrying you can imagine the volumes that uh, that's with with our general horse population um so doing body condition scoring um all over you should be looking at most of your horses at the end of a summer period should be sitting about body consistent score around about five or six so they build it up over the summer it's a natural cycle put on the weight and then lose it over the winter the biggest problem we have with domesticated species is they don't lose it over the winter so they're not doing the exercise so the thing is with obesity that it, it cascades to a lot of other problems and one of those biggest problems we have is uh, laminitis as a result of obesity Everyone thinks that laminitis is the only thing that horses will actually get as a result of being overweight. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And I have quite a nice little list here, actually, um, that has been written. And it was it was actually composed by a couple of medicine specialists, um, David Rendell, Pat Harrison, uh, Nicola menzies Gower, And they, they produced a lovely little summary. Uh, I'm just going to go through these really quickly just to illustrate that there's more than one thing that they're getting on top of the laminitis. So obviously we have the laminitis. You have the poorer prognosis actually due to the recovery of laminitis. So you're going to find it's more prolonged. Uh, also increased risk of impairments with thermoregulation so they're not going to be to hold their temperature correctly as well so we've got all the rugging and over rugging problems Um, altered changes to estrus cycles so with mares coming into season we also have something that changes what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines so almost like cellular aging as a result of obesity and again we see that in human patients as well um, those people out there that are interested in breeding horses, uh, mares that are overweight, we've found a correlation between uh, a condition called OCD or osteochondrosis desiccans actually found in foals from overweight mares. You also increase the risk of biomechanical issues and that lamenesses and things due to overloading of the joints and everything because of weight. Increased risk of gaining what we call ventral edema, so large amounts of fat sat on the bottom of the abdomen that can uh, have direct influences on lymphatic drainage and problems uh, associated with that. And again, the dreaded one is colic. Um, You have excessive amounts of weight and fat built up. We find a lot of that builds up in the abdomen. can result in strangulating lipomas and lesions like that. So again, the list actually goes on and on and there's even more but I think it illustrates the fact that we do have huge problems with regards to obesity but laminitis is the main one that everyone sees and us trying to control that obesity is the main key to reducing laminitic rates so what can we do what can an owner do on a yard level with a horse which is overweight a is to accept that it's overweight the amount of times that you go onto a yard and owners are like Yeah, no, my horse is absolutely fine. You know it's overweight. You know deep down that horse is overweight as well. So accept it and do something about it for that horse's health. It's all about preventative medicine. So in the ideal world, everyone would have a weigh bridge. 
A weigh bridge, as long as it's calibrated regularly, is the most accurate way, to, uh, way of getting a weight for your horse. There are a lot of feed companies out there, referral centres, and including in our own veterinary practice that have a weigh bridge can come out quite often way for free, so there's no excuse really not to get an accurate weight for your horse. And monitoring that throughout a yearly period, there are natural waxes and wanes in the weight of horses. You should get to know what your horse is doing all the time and what's normal for your horse. Having a weigh tape. Uh, weigh tapes are great, um, but it's using them regularly again. You can use weigh tapes in various different ways. You can use them around the actual girth area or around the belly area. It's actually found doing it around the belly area is probably a more accurate way of predicting or showing weight loss rather than using it around the girth area. But again, it's having consistency in your measurement. Also using weight tapes over the back of the rump and looking at rump weight. Everyone knows in those classical little ponies, you get a nice little groove down its bottom that we don't want that so as they lose weight they lose the groove obviously the the overall diameter of that is going to go down those are the things that you can do on the yard but also getting your vet or your veterinary practice involved in sometimes a little bit more in investigative work with regards to the obesity so looking for underlying causes for the obesity most people have heard of Cushing syndromes or PPID. Um, yes, we know that that does play a component and a role potentially to obesity, but also uh, equine metabolic syndrome. So everyone thinks again of insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance or insulin dysregulation in horses is slightly different to human patients. And that's got to be a clear demarcation and that horses don't classically get the type 2 diabetes that people do. So they have an insulin dysregulation. And with insulin dysregulation, we can actually measure that. So them having food all the time, how are they actually metabolizing that? How is it going through the system? Is it being laid down as fat? Or is it being actually used up in muscles? So there are ways in which we can assess that. Classically, uh, or recently rather, we used to use a hormone called adiponectin. So come out, take a blood test, which was great. Unfortunately, adiponectin's lost a little bit of favour due to laboratory testing and the availability of it, but it's still there and present. Using um, sugar tolerance tests as well is another way to see whether your horse actually has an insulin dysregulation. So getting your vet actually involved, looking at those causal factors is just as important as you going along working with your veterinary practice, working with your feed company, working with your wholesaler, everyone else trying to get that horse to lose weight. Remember again, exercise, dietary management are the key. Doing half an hour twice a week. If you go down to the gym for half an hour twice a week and you're trying to lose weight, you're going to struggle to lose weight. A horse will do exactly that. A horse will eat until it it's full it almost sometimes beyond when it's full and will carry on eating us doing small amounts of exercise loading in with hard feeds and forage is not going to do these horses any good we need to watch the amount that we're actually feeding them be proactive get your veterinary practice actually involved with that and help get these obesity cases down Hopefully that was useful and I know there are a lot of horses out there with weight issues and fingers crossed you can get on top of it. But just as a, as a useful little adjunct, there are some trials that are going around at the moment, our practice is part of that, where we're actually putting stickers now just onto vaccine um, charts and passports to give you a colour-coded system, green, amber and red, whether your horse is overweight, needs to lose weight or is actually ideal weighting. So Keep an eye with your veterinary practice when they come out on routine vaccinations, discuss 
about weight management, get them involved as well. But they may be part of this scheme of which you start to see some new stickers popping up on your passports. It gives you a good colour-coded system, whether you're doing well, whether your horse needs a little bit more help. So that's it for the first episode of the Horse and Hound podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back next Thursday when Horse and Hound features editor Martha Terry will join us to tell us about how she's brought together our royal special with some amazing exclusive insight from both the Queen and her granddaughter Zara Tyndall. We will also be talking to Sally McMillan, the owner-breeder of Heron's Mill Tiger Lily, who won the Cuddy in Hand Championship at Horse of the Year show last year. And finally, Ricky will be bringing us his best advice on worming, which is obviously a vital element of routine healthcare for horses. So have a great week and thanks for listening. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production. <laughs>